following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church. Of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor. Senior Pastor, N. Eric Nielsen. It's great to see so many people here, especially when half the church leaves for Sunday school. So many of you are still here. If you were here last week, then hopefully you have rediscovered why it is that you do what you do, right? Last week we talked about why it is that we do what we do. If you weren't here last week, you're probably still confused and wondering why you're even here. But we discovered last week why it is that we do what we do, and that is because we have the answer to the decline and decay of humanity and human society, and the answer, his name is Jesus Christ. He came to restore that which was broken. He came to redeem the lost and transform the sinner into a saint. And as you learned last week, it was the time of the judges that was particularly a dark period in the history of Israel, a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. And it would be a similar way to describe today, our post-Christian society in the West. And there is a great need today for you and I as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ the Redeemer, for us to be, as he said, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. It's up to you and I, in whatever it is that we do, to be the moral standard, the standard bearer where the lines have become so blurred among people, what is right and what is wrong. It's you and I who have to bring hope to people who are in despair and depression. We are the ones that should be peacemakers where there's conflict and war. In a day when more and more people are more and more selfish and envious, greedy, materialistic than ever before, you and I stand as the salt of the earth and the light of the world to be self-sacrificing and kind, generous, eternally minded, more so than our fathers and grandfathers ever were. So where do we start? Where can we start being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Well, today we're going to learn about kindness and redemption from a story that I think that all of you are familiar with, because if you were here last summer when we studied the character Ruth through the book of Ruth, we'll see a story that strikes us as this ray of hope. And today I'm going to suggest that one place for us to start being that ray of hope in this generation of decline and decay is to practice simple acts of kindness. I know people call it sometimes a random act of kindness, but my hope is that you're going to actually think deliberately, intentionally, about doing something kind to someone else, whether it's a stranger or someone else that you happen to know. Because that's what the story of Ruth is really all about. There are two key words in the book of Ruth. And in our journey of the Old Testament, we've been through the five books of Moses, a lot of history in there, a lot of law in there. Then we looked at Joshua where they conquered the land. And then Judges where it should have been a glorious time for the Israelites, but instead, because of their sinfulness, because of their waywardness, it became a time of darkness and decay. Here for a moment is a story that is so beautiful, 
I think you're familiar with it, but it's really a story about kindness and redemption. Those are the two key words in the book of Ruth. So I'm going to give a small summary of the book of Ruth, and then we're going to talk about what it means to be um, the people of God who practice kindness and redemption. The book of Ruth, as an author, well, we don't know who the author is. The author was obviously a, a, a person who was after the time of Ruth herself. It has been traditionally attributed to Samuel, the last of the judges. The audience was the people of Israel, but not during Ruth's time. It was during the reign of King David, since David is mentioned in the closing genealogy of this book. Possibly in the time of Solomon, as some commentators think that it was perhaps written much later than David because there's some commentary about some of the customs of the Israelites at the time, and perhaps there was more distance between the time of Ruth and the time of the authorship. But the purpose of Ruth is quite simple. It is to provide the historical transition from the patriarchs, and when we say patriarchs, we mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going back even to Noah and Adam, um, as well as the leaders like Moses and Joshua and the judges. It is that link, the historical transition between the patriarchs to the monarchs, the kings, describing also the sovereign hand of God in the origin of the greatest of Israel's kings ever, King David. The theme is this, that God's will is accomplished by common people with a faith that makes them unique in their day and age. My hope is that that'll be the common theme of each one of our lives, that God will use us to accomplish through us common people something that requires a faith that makes us unique in our day and age. So my hope is that through this book of Ruth, you'll be motivated to be the people of God that we are supposed to be in a day of decline and decay. The key words, as I said, are uh, kindness and redemption. The kindness in the Hebrew word is chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, if you're taking notes. And it is a word that is translated throughout the Bible in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's translated the loving kindness of the Lord, or His tender mercies, or the steadfast love of the Lord. It's His loyalty to His covenant. Chesed, or Kesed. And then there's the word kinsman, or redeemer, the goel. And it means to do the part of a kinsman and redeem his kin. It's sometimes translated the kinsman redeemer. And these two words are essentially the theme of the book of Ruth. The godly life that we are called to offers this ray of hope in a generation of decline and decay. And my hope is that we will go out today and have on our minds this intention to be kind to others and to redeem a bad situation into being something that's good. So let's go to the book of Ruth. If you open your Bibles, you'll notice that there's really only three pages to the book of Ruth. So for you to go home and read this on your own, it'll take you maximum 12 minutes, my guess. It's a really short book, but it's a beautiful story. It's a story that really ought to go viral. I'll put it that way. It begins in the days when the judges ruled. Right? And if you were here last week, you know that this was a chaotic time in the history of Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there was this cycle that God's people went through. They were supposed to serve Him, but instead they would forsake the Lord their God, and they would follow the gods of the people around them. We'll call that the sin part of the cycle. So God would be provoked to anger, and He would send enemies against them. 
Now they would be oppressed, and we'll call that the servitude part of the cycle. Then as people would endure such great distress until they would finally cry out and beg the Lord, please come and save us, and then we call that the supplication part. And then, of course, the Lord would respond. He would raise up judges and leaders to rescue them from their enemies, and we'll call that the salvation part of the cycle. And then there's a period of silence when things would go on and the next generation would come, and then that cycle would return. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence again. And the book of Judges is filled with accounts of how the people would descend into chaos. And if you were here last week, you would remember the horrors of a couple of the stories that we saw, that we looked at last week, because they did things their own way. Now it says that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Maybe you remember the sermon several weeks ago called Choose Your Destiny, that the Lord had warned the Israelites, if you choose to go your own way and not follow my ways, then your destiny will be death and destruction. And this is exactly what they were experiencing at that time. This lack of food can be a consequence of which the Lord had already warned his people centuries prior. Some of the curses they would endure include they would suffer disease and drought. They would be defeated in battle and oppressed by their enemies. Their crops would fail. Their livestock would not reproduce. They would be economically ruined. And it was God's way to discipline his own people from their wayward and rebellious ways. And we have to look at it in the eye and acknowledge that God is a holy God. He punishes sin because he's holy. And when we forsake him and his ways, there will be consequences to bear because he loves us. And God does not make empty promises. He does not give empty warnings. So he wants his people to choose his ways because by choosing his ways, we can experience the abundant life that he had created us for. Well, then there is this man named Elimelech. As we continue in the book of Ruth, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. His name, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons moved to Moab. Now it's significant that they were in Moab. Why is it so significant? Well, because the Moabites, they were descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And they were descendants of Lot through a vile sexual encounter that he had with his daughters. And when God later led the Israelites out of Egypt to the Promised Land, the Moabites would not let them pass through. So God pronounced a curse against them. He said to the Israelites, you shall never seek the peace, their peace, nor their prosperity all your days. They were to make no treaty at all with the Moabites once they were to arrive in the Promised Land. But here, because of a famine, because they were starving, they left and they went to live in the land of Moab. And there, the two sons married Moabite women. And marrying foreign women was expressly forbidden. And centuries later, we'll see that the nation needs to repent of their habit when they return from Babylon. But Ruth was different. In the story of Ruth, we realize that Ruth wanted to be named among the Israelites. She wanted to be a worshiper of the Lord. And she had a reputation of being a woman of noble character. So the time came when Naomi heard, excuse me, first of all, Elimelech died, and so did their two sons. And so now Naomi was left with her two daughters-in-law, all three of them widows, all three of them without their, 
major, their primary means of providing for them. So Naomi hears about bread being available once again in the land of Israel, and she decides to pack their things and go. And she leaves with her daughters-in-law, and at some point in the journey, Naomi instructs their daughter, her daughters-in-law, now go back, each of you. And she tried to send them home. And she repeated the urging to go home, but Ruth decides she's going to stay with her mother-in-law. And a beautiful thing that she says to her, uh, she says if you uh, turn in, also in chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So then Ruth ends up with Naomi. They've now returned to Bethlehem. And Ruth, of course, has to go out and get food. The barley harvest was beginning, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 22. And Naomi and Ruth needed to eat, so they had to glean the fields near the city. They hadn't plowed or sowed anything. They didn't have fields of their own. It's likely that Elimelech had sold his property before leaving. Perhaps Naomi could have done so because of their poverty. And so here were these two destitute widows, and the law had provided for them a means to eat. The law required the Israelites to not harvest everything of their field to the edges. Instead, you shall leave those things. You shall not uh, glean your vineyard. You shall not gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And what's interesting then is that Ruth ends up in the field that belongs to a kinsman, someone who's related to them. And I love how it's expressed here. If you turn in your... Um, Bibles again in chapter 2, um, it says in verse 3 that she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, the NIV just simply says, as it turns out. I love the literal translation. It says, her chance chanced upon a field that belonged to Boaz. Other translations were, would say, her hap was to light upon that field, or she happened by chance. Friends, this was no coincidence, but it certainly looks like just dumb luck, doesn't it? That she ends up gleaning a field that belongs to a family member. And when she comes home, her mother-in-law realizes this is a family who's an eligible kinsman redeemer a man of standing, a man of great wealth. You see, the law provided for a near relative to buy back the family's field, the field that may have been sold in order to be able to pay for bills and have food to eat. And there was something called a leveret marriage, that if a man died and left a widow, that an unmarried brother should marry that widow. And the first child that was born in that union would be the dead man's heir. Now, those laws may sound strange in our ears, very strange to us, but that was how God provided for the widow and the poor. 
And Boaz, who owns this field, shows Ruth a kindness, insisting to her, glean from these fields and no others, protecting her from his men, allowing her to glean alongside the harvesters, opposed to waiting until the end of the harvest, and offering her her lunch with his workers, and then sending her home with a full load. She goes home with not only the leftovers of her lunch, with whatever she gleaned that day, about an ephah of threshed barley. You know how much an ephah of threshed barley is? Of course you don't know. But it's about 30 pounds. See, that's why you have people studying your Bibles for you, to tell you these things. It doesn't take a lot of research, friends. 30 pounds, that's enough food for many days. So much that Naomi expressed her surprise. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. And the beautiful part of the story is that Naomi then begins matchmaking for Boaz to marry Ruth. She gives Ruth instructions so that Boaz would know that Ruth is interested in marrying him. And Ruth follows her mother-in-law's instructions. And the actions that Ruth takes don't make much sense in today's customs as well, but they were certainly understood by those who were involved in them. And one thing is certain, there was nothing sexual in Ruth's actions nor in Boaz's treatment of her. They were very careful to maintain Ruth's reputation as a woman of noble character. And Boaz agreed to marry Ruth, but there was a problem, a problem of a nearer relative. And so Boaz, using his customs in his day, took care of that process, confirming his position as an eligible husband to Ruth, but offering the nearer kinsman the opportunity to marry her instead and to redeem the property for her. Well, that nearer kinsman uh, declined, and so Boaz redeemed the land, fulfilled his obligations to marry Ruth, and what we see then is this beautiful story of redemption, of sacrifice, of generosity, of commitment, of loyalty and duty set against this lawlessness of the book of Judges, the chaos and the depravity of the time. It's sandwiched right in between the Judges and 1 Samuel. Judges ends with, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. And in Samuel, it opens up with a stage being set for the birth of Samuel. But in the midst of all of this is God's own people, having forsaken him, having forsaken his ways, having endured the consequences. Now we see this beautiful story of a noble, of a noble Moabitess choosing to be named among the Israelites and experiencing God's favor through it. What happens then at the end? Well, Ruth's great-grandchild would become Israel's greatest king, the recipient of God's covenant for an eternal kingdom, and yes, the direct ancestor of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ruth's place in God's history was by God's grace and his faithfulness to his people. The hero in this book is God. We see his sovereign hand throughout its events recorded there. Yes, we have Boaz, who was remarkable in his kindness. He is an example of kindness and redemption. He is, in a way, a little bit of a model of who Jesus is. We also have Ruth's remarkable faithfulness, the choice she makes to follow the Lord's ways. But let's not lose sight that the hero in this story is God. The book opens up with famine, and it ends with large harvests of grain. It begins with deaths of the men of the family of Elimelech, but it ends with a new generation beginning as a child of Ruth and Boaz. It starts with hopelessness of these three widows. Naomi wants to be called bitter, Mara, instead of pleasant, which her name really means. And in the end, Naomi has a son, 
Things changed for them because of a kinsman redeemer. God has been faithful, redeeming his people through sovereign acts. And this story offers then this ray of hope. Now, you and I, as God's redeemed people, we're supposed to be the ray of hope in people's lives today. Consider with me how much kindness God has shown to us. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, as you'll see the scriptures describing his kindness. Timothy, then Titus, chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul reminds Titus that at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That describes most of the Western world today. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That continues to describe the world today. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You might not realize this, but you were once a child of wrath. Because of your sin, God's anger and condemnation were pointed directly at you. And when the Holy Spirit revealed to us our sinfulness, we recognized that, yes, I deserve the punishment of death. But because God was merciful, because He was kind, because He loved us, and because He's rich in mercy, instead He makes us alive in Christ. And though we don't deserve it, he places us in the heavenly places with Christ at the right hand of the Father, saved by grace, given us spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and our salvation was impossible to earn or deserve, making more his kindness and his riches on display so that we could boast in him and not in ourselves. When you consider how kind God has been to you, Consider now also that God wants the objects of His kindness to be the ones to display His kindness. Here's what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. Turn with me if you will. I do hope you'll bring your Bibles each Sunday. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, Therefore as God's chosen people, that's you now, holy and dearly loved, that's also you, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So you, as the object of God's kindness, are now supposed to display His kindness to one another. Remember how we were supposed to rediscover last week the reason we do what we do. That's because all around us there is a generation that has forgotten compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. They don't bear with one another, they bear each other's grudges. We remain on this earth because God wants to use us, the redeemed, to bring that message of redemption to others. He doesn't take us immediately to heaven to be with Him, although He longs for us to be with Him. 
He leaves us here because we have a message of redemption to bring to others. And so in a very practical way, you and I can be that ray of hope in our generation by simply practicing a godly form of kindness to show all of those who are around us and restores their hope in God. Usually when you hear a story of kindness that goes viral on social media, usually people say, wow, this really restores my hope in humanity, right? As though it was ourselves that are doing this. Well, we have to make sure that it is through God's kindness shown us that we demonstrate kindness to others. So they might say, well, I, my, my hope in humanity is restored, and we can point them directly to God. We have to make sure that we are clear. It is God that gives us hope, and He uses people and their actions as His agents of redemption. Have you heard of some of those stories of kindness that have gone viral on the Internet? I'm sure you have. Anyone with a Facebook account has heard some pretty touching stories, I'm sure. There was the story of Christian Truesdale that came out this last week. Maybe you don't remember the name, but you maybe remember the story. He's an 18-year-old stock assistant working for Aldi in the UK. Anyone else heard this story? I'm quite sure it's a true story. After all, it was on the internet, right? <laughs> he was approached by a 95-year-old who asked him to walk him home from the grocery store because it was a windy day, and he was afraid of falling. And so this Christian Truesdale, this stock assistant, he didn't hesitate. He talked to his manager, asked if it was okay, and his manager agreed he should walk him home. And so with the groceries in one hand and the, other, the older man's hand in his other hand, he walked him home. This story went viral, but Christian didn't expect this much attention. It was simply an act of kindness, and somehow an act like that is so rare these days that all of us are so heartwarmed by it. I quote from the article that Christian simply credits his mom and dad for teaching him what is right and wrong and how to treat others. He says all this attention is, quote, very strange because this is just something I would normally do. My parents have raised me to treat other people like you want to be treated yourself. Just a simple act of kindness that goes viral because of something that his parents taught them that came from Jesus himself. Then there's the story of Brandy the waitress. Brandy was a waitress in a restaurant. Now, of course, as a waitress, you're expected to smile and to serve with grace and confidence, but she had a situation that troubled her, and she was talking with a coworker about the fact that she wanted to visit her son but couldn't. She couldn't afford it. Well, a customer then left her a $200 tip for a meal that was less than $10, and with it a note that said, Brandy, thank you for your service. I overheard you talking about your son. Use this to visit him. You read the comments on that story. They all mention how nice it is that there are still some good people in the world, that there's still hope after all, and that these stories are truly inspirational. And some even write, thank you, Jesus and may God continue to use people. So, what if the story was going to be about you this week? Maybe it won't go viral, but what kindness could you show, inspired by the kindness you've seen in the book of Ruth? Maybe returning a wallet, or anything else that someone else owns and has lost. Maybe just learning the name of your server, 
Has anyone ever asked their waiter what their name is? Matthew, has anyone ever asked you what your name is? They have. Okay. Makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. What about responding to the person who's taking a survey on the phone? How about responding with a kind tone, even though it's irritating that they're calling you for the third time? Or how about bringing over a meal to someone you know is unwell? Or keeping your word even though it's no longer convenient to keep your word and now will cost you more than you had counted on when you first gave your word? Or paying the toll for the car that's behind you? Total stranger. I don't know. But rather than a random act of kindness, maybe just a deliberate, intentional act of kindness for someone you know, or perhaps even a stranger. Now, here's the kinds of relationships where it really gets noticed between a husband and a wife. You know, it's our Christian marriages that should make the rest of the world envious that we actually speak kindly to one another as husband and wife and respect each other. Or how about between brothers and, or siblings? You know, when you're selfish, you hurt the family, and when you hurt the family, you hurt yourself. Because if you destroy the family, you destroy yourself. Or how about among neighbors? Who wants to live in a neighborhood where everyone's always checking the windows and not sure if, it, if they're safe? Wouldn't you rather know that your neighbors are looking out for your place, too, when you're not there? Or your workplace. Who wants to work in a place where it's every man for himself and there's backstabbing and gossiping? That's a place where kindness can make a difference. And I'm sure you've, you've seen the movies about pay it forward. You know, instead of waiting for someone to be kind to you and then paying them back, no, why don't you pay it forward? Do it in advance. Yeah, and, and there, you could start a kindness revolution just like the movie shows. Well, why not start in the church? Why not start among God's people to whom God has shown so much kindness? So as I said earlier, the story of Ruth is a beautiful story of kindness and redemption. Those are the two key words, kindness and redemption. How can we demonstrate that? Just like the book of Ruth is set in the decline and decay of a people who had forgotten God and gone their own way, we live in a day and age where people have forgotten God. We are the light of the world, and we can begin with kindness and redemption. So I ask you, what will you do this week? What could be that story of kindness and redemption that gets shared to offer the rest of the world a ray of hope? Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.